This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Just when you think things are getting better with cases declining new problems, this time out of South Africa, the country suspending plans to vaccinate the healthcare workers with the AstraZeneca vaccine follows a small clinical trial, suggests it's not effective at preventing illness from the variant that's dominant there in that country. So we'll get into what that means for the rest of us. Speaking of variants, the U.K. variant is soon to be the main strain going around across the pond here in the U.S. Figuring out who gets vaccines, when and next has been a big debate. Can it be done fairly? Los Angeles County, where we happen to be, now focusing its limited vaccine supplies on second doses. Now, is that a smart idea? Once you are vaccinated, does it mean you can toss the masks, go out to the bars? We'll take a look. Well, let's start with the South African variant. Dr. Katrick Chandran is a virologist and microbiologist at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. Doctor, are we going to be living with variants of the virus for the rest of our foreseeable lives? Um, I think, you know, the viruses probably isn't going to completely go away, just as the, you know, influenza virus hasn't completely gone away and other common cold coronaviruses haven't completely gone away. I think what we'll eventually get to is a point where it becomes much more manageable and predictable and won't cause these huge, this huge kind of outbreaks or a pandemic because everybody's going to have some level of pre-existing immunity, either from having been exposed or from getting the vaccine. And then we may need to boost that vaccine on some kind of interval. I think the details remain to be determined over time, but essentially, you know, we will be able to manage this infection just like we do manage a lot of other viral uh, infections through vaccination at regular intervals. Would that mean maybe like a yearly vaccine? And, and in that kind of a sense, do you aim for something that, yeah, you can still catch this and yeah, maybe you'll be home for a few days, but you're unlikely to wind up in the hospital or die? Yes, and that's a really important point um, because vaccines can work in two different ways. So one thing that they do, and maybe the most important thing they do, is they keep people from getting really sick, having to go to the hospital, and from dying. Um, but the second thing that they also do is they reduce the spread of the virus from person to person, and so they help us flatten the curve. And you know, along with wearing masks and physical distancing and all these things that you were just talking about. Um, which we still need to do. So ideally, vaccines will do both things. They'll protect the individual from getting seriously ill uh, and, and dying, but they will also protect a larger population um, by preventing or reducing the, the spread of the virus. And what we're going to see as these you know, variants come along is that you know, in some cases, we may see some effect on the ability of the vaccine to prevent spread from person to person. So people may still get it. They may still get a mild infection. Um, but it should prevent them from getting really sick and having to go to the hospital, which, you know, is, is incredibly important, obviously. But this is also why we can't, you know, have house parties and rip our masks off once we've been vaccinated. <laughs> we don't actually know that both pieces of that puzzle are going to work equally well. But you know what, what I think people are also somewhat concerned about is, you know, you mentioned, you know, the flu and the thing about the flu uh, first of all, is it, it is you know seasonal, right? So we kind of get this down period between flu shots when in the summer months, at least here in the U.S., uh, we don't really worry that much about the flu. That gives us a chance to catch our breath. Then we get the next flu shot for the next year. That doesn't seem to be the case, though, 
with this virus. I mean, you know, we, we've barely begun vaccinating people for the old strain. Uh, there really doesn't seem to be a seasonal thing in any meaningful way with coronavirus infections. So how do we ever catch up so that people are inoculated for the most recent strains? Right. So what we're seeing right now is a result of the fact that we have no immunity to this virus at all. This is exactly what happened in 1918 with influenza. We had a huge pandemic, um, but eventually things settled down and that virus turned into a seasonal virus. And so the expectation here is, is as well that some, something similar will happen with this coronavirus. Right now, the virus is replicating and spreading because there's really nothing to stop it because our immune system hasn't really experienced this virus before. And we don't have any real barriers to the spread of the virus. Now, over time, as people develop immunity through various mechanisms, um, you know, the virus will have a much more difficult, you know, it, it can't, you know, it, it can't just run up field to, you know, or run downfield and, and score a touchdown without any blockers or any, any members of the sort of the defense sort of preventing them from doing that. Um, you know, it's going to have to actually dodge and weave around tacklers, and that's going to prevent it from going as far as quickly. And so, you know, right now there are millions and millions of um, essentially times that the virus is copying itself and people all over the world. That just increases the probability that you're going to get variants and that these variants are going to be able to get a foothold and spread. But once that we control the virus, you know, its space to operate becomes much more limited. And so we're just going to see kind of fewer um, such variants arising. And we're going to keep, you know, up, think of the vaccine, you know, as just updating software, right? So the first version of the software has some glitches and you have to come in with the version 2.0. And so we are now at a point in our technology with vaccines where we can actually start to do this. So we'll be able to update the vaccine to kind of meet whatever's happening in the moment. And I, you know, the anticipation is that we will go to a situation where it is seasonal and we will have a window of time to respond to adjust the vaccine just as we do right and, now. And I bet, you, I bet you you watched the Super Bowl. Um, you know, I have to say that I didn't, but I did watch the highlights after. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Dr. Katrick Chandran, virologist, microbiologist, Albert Einstein College of Medicine. The UK variant of this virus seems to be more contagious than the original. It looks like it'll be the dominant strain going around the U.S. Uh, pretty soon. Dr. Mark Zeller, geneticist, microbiologist, Scripps Research Institute. His lab helps ID the UK strain as a type that's now circulating widely here in the U.S. So, Doctor, how much time do we have until this one is the dominant one in this country? Uh, yeah, so uh, in our study, we showed that probably by the end of March, uh, this new uh, UK variant will be the most uh, predominant strain in the in the United States, um, and also here uh, in, in California. Okay, so that could put us in a pretty serious situation. What in a matter of weeks to months, if our surge follows what it's done in the other spots that it's been. Yeah, so this new variant is more uh, transmissible uh, than than the currently circulating. Um, SARS-CoV-2 uh, viruses here in uh, California. So we have a couple weeks until, let's say, five, six weeks until this becomes dominant. And then it becomes really, really hard, um, or let's say way more difficult to control uh, the outbreak and would require much more stringent, stringent measures uh, to get basically the same effect. Well, well let's, so, talk, let, let's talk about more stringent measures. I, I mean, because first of all, a lot of people, I think there's a lot of confusion out there when they hear 
that uh, this variant, the UK variant, is easy to transmit, I, I think erroneously, and correct me if I'm wrong, people think, oh, that means it's it, wearing masks, it won't work. Or social distancing, instead of six feet apart, we have to stand, I don't know, a half a mile apart. It doesn't mean any of that, does it? Oh, no, no. Mask work. I mean, they, they, they're they going to be really, really important, and we need to double down on it. And the same with social distancing. So those two things are really helping to uh, to slow the spread of this ver- of, of SARS-CoV-2, and it will also slow the spread of this uh, uh, new UK variant. So we know about... Um, uh, go ahead. No, it's... I was just going to say, so, so we're pretty clear on the, on the transmissibility factor. What about it being deadlier uh yeah so so it seems to be slightly more um deadly than the current um uh, the, the current viruses we have here um but it's still a little unclear like how much uh, more deadly it is um i do think like the, the increased transmissibility is going to be way more problematic in the near future uh, because you will have sort of like an exponential increase right um because the person, if one person infects um, multiple other persons and does more so with this new variants, right? Each of those next persons will also infect more other persons, right? So, so it's sort of like a, a snowball effect, um, and you will end up with way more um, people, in, in, well, infected and and potentially also like hospitalized. Now, other, um, other than, than than doubling down on wearing masks and, and social distancing, the the two current vaccines that are available in this country, the Pfizer, the Moderna, effective against this variant, and how effective? Yeah, yeah, they they they're they're really effective. Um, so um, yeah, vaccination is going to be the most important um, uh, you know uh, tool in our arsenal. So we need to make sure that we like double down on vaccinations and make sure we get the older um, older people and the vulnerable people like vaccinated as quickly as possible. Um, so at least they are protected uh, when this B117, the UK variant becomes like more uh, dominant and will increase spread. So what, one quick, one thing- quick uh, question is so we're going to run out of time. Uh, for people, especially older people who get uh, two full two shots, at what point would they be fully protected against this variant? Oh, after this. Um, well, it, it's a gradual process, but let's say after the second shot, let's say two weeks after the second shot, um, you will be probably have a, a really good protection. Dr. Mark Zeller, virologist, Scripps Research Institute. Everyone was hopeful when the vaccines came out, but new problems arose when it came to distribution. Some groups want to move to the front of the line. They're competing with others who, uh, they want the same. So how do you decide? Dr. Harold Schmidt, professor of medical ethics, health policy at the University of Pennsylvania. He talked to KYW's Charlotte Reese. So I think there's, it's understandable that many people are very frustrated with how the rollout is going. And it is an incredibly complex process, right? We've As a country, we've never done anything on this scale. So I think it's fair to say that everybody is still getting their head around how we should go about this. And what I see is a very sincere commitment at state and jurisdiction level efforts to get this right. But in many ways, we run into obstacles in the real world, how to make these things happen. So we're in the early days, there's a lot of rough waters, but I have reason to believe that going ahead, we're, we're getting into smoother waters.
your other question was what are the what were the biggest obstacles in the rollout, right? Mm-hmm. So there are various barriers in the way, right? So one is how do you actually arrange the logistics? It's really non-trivial. States have been given some notice, but they really only knew what the vaccines they should plan for were from October. Um, so there's a lot of pieces to, to get into place, you, to get your ducks on the road, to, to make that happen isn't trivial. The other thing is that we've only just in late December uh, had final guidance on the initial phases of priority groups from the CDC. And that has caused a lot of friction too for states. So CDC initially asked states to publish their allocation plans at the end of October um, so that they would set out how they prioritize different population groups. But the CDC's advisory committee that provides guides from the CDC perspective only published their final guidance in December. So that caused a lot of back and forth for states where they had already started um, establishing priority groups, then they got a reorientation from the CDC. And now with the new Biden administration that does so many things right in terms of especially prioritizing equity, we have yet more reorientations. In, in particular, an interest to open up phases that, that are felt to be too constraining. So if you are a policy planner at the city level or at the state level, that's a lot of things to align, to get the logistics into place and to have repeated reorientations in terms of the overall allocation framework and directions that come from the federal government. So those things, I think we all have to cut the policymakers a lot of slack and understand that it's really an incredible job to square all those things and, and make uh, allocation happen in the real world. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that's changing so much even before the Biden administration kind of laid out their plan. And I've been following your writing, and I think you made some really interesting points about American inequality and how that's kind of fitting into the vaccine distribution. How has inequity become a stumbling block for vaccine efforts. Can you break that down a little bit? I mean, you know, what's the saying? No problem exists in a vacuum. So what's kind of the backstory to this rollout and American inequality? Absolutely. So in general, when we have to ration, right, when we have situations where demand outstrips supply, what we try to do is we maximize benefits. That's sort of the staple in ethics, that that's how we approach these situations. Now, the problem with COVID is that if we do that, we will very likely only exacerbate existing health inequalities. And that's a huge problem and one that helpfully policymakers, both at the state level and now with the new Biden administration, also at the federal level, have recognized. And the the basic point is that we have uh, highly unequal outcomes in terms of health outcomes and life expectancy in the country that largely reflect different access to healthcare systems, that reflect different social mobility for racial and, and ethnic groups. And because health is closely associated with place and there are many clusters in which people live who don't have the same opportunities to live a healthy and long life, that is something that needs to be considered in how we allocate vaccines. 
So, for example, to make it concrete, right? If I'm working in a state and I'm thinking, okay, I've been given a thousand vaccines and now I distribute them. Why don't I just do that by population and um, distribute them across my region? Well, it turns out that some people in some regions can actually live in an easy way, in a socially distanced way, live safely and wait a little longer for a vaccine than others. And that's the real imperative that we recognize that whatever allocation plan we have in terms of ordering our priority groups, whether we have essential workers before older groups or the other way around, within each of these groups, we must make sure that more disadvantaged people get access to vaccines before those who are less disadvantaged and who are more privileged, because for them, it is a lot easier to wait a little longer. And it is, that's not the case for people who are worse off. And because society is structured the way it is, more among the group of disadvantaged people in society are racial and ethnic minorities. And that's why if we accomplish equitable vaccine allocation, we can actually reduce existing inequities rather than maintain them or worse, exacerbate them. Coming up after this short break, is two really better than just one? Places like Great Britain and Israel have rushed out their first vaccine doses to try to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Now, they're not as worried about making sure people get a second dose three or four weeks later, but Los Angeles County is doing the opposite. Yeah, this week it's just for people who need that second dose. Anne Ramoyne is a professor of epidemiology, infectious diseases at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. So, doctor, uh, does it make sense to do things this way? The problem is it has to do with the supply of the vaccine, and there just isn't enough vaccine right now so that they're, they're going to have to prioritize. And we, we know from the, the science, we're trying to follow the science right now, and what we know about the science is that we need to give a second dose uh, within a, a reasonable period of time to be able to ensure that, that we have optimal immunity. It's important that people have optimal immunity and not partial immunity because we, we risk having more infections and the potential for the virus to, to mutate further. So it's important right now that we, we continue to follow the science that we have so that we don't create an additional problem and get people their second doses. I know it's frustrating for everybody. There is more supply coming. We're understanding that there's going to be ramping up of production uh, quickly. Pfizer is going to be able to, to increase production by 50% in, in, in a short period of time. There is a lot of work uh, to get these vaccines ramped up. But the fact of the matter is, is we just don't have enough vaccine. But, you know, you, what I'm sure a lot of people are doing, though, is they're looking at two examples. They're looking at the UK, where the, the medical community there has said, no, it's okay to wait longer than the period that the trials tested for, because it's more important to give out as many first doses as we can and get as many people as we can, at least initially, vaccinated. And I think they're also looking at the example of Israel, where they're reporting that after just one of the two doses that Pfizer requires, they're having uh, a, a very fast drop in, uh, in new cases, I think in the order of about 30 percent over just the past three weeks. And they're showing an efficacy rate far higher for the first dose than even Pfizer showed during its during uh, the trials. So I do think that people are kind of looking at those examples and saying, if the British can do it and if the Israelis can do it, why can't we do it? 
Well, I think it's just the the fact is over there they've got the 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 UK variant spreading very very quickly. They have rapidly escalating cases. Right now we're in a, a period where we have cases actually declining, which is good. It may give us a couple weeks of breathing room. Uh, we So what we'd like to be able to do is to get as many people fully vaccinated as possible. And we may need to switch strategies in the in the coming weeks. But I think that that right now with without data in hand, this is the the choice that our uh, our our government has taken. And and I think we're going to be learning a lot more as we see what happens in these other countries. Um, we're we're taking a conservative approach. Uh, but it's it's not without some basis in science and our concern about the the other side effects. You know, unfortunately, this is a scenario where no good deed goes unpunished. Um, you're either either scenario isn't perfect, and so right now we're we're going with the science and looking to see certainly looking to see what's happening in other countries. What the decision that's made today is not necessarily the same decision that's going to be made tomorrow. This is an evolving situation. This is a novel virus. Um, we're, we're learning something new every day. So I think we can anticipate changes as we learn more. Would you feel comfortable if we did switch the approach? Because I guess you can make the argument both ways. And one of them is, okay, we have to get the doses out there to as many people as possible and give them something. You can give them some form of immunity, the partial. Um, but then the argument against that is, no, give people as much as you can with the two doses if we're going to fight off these variants. You know, I, I still think that, that I think it's a it's a toss up. And and I don't think that anybody has the, the, the perfect answer right now. I think that the answer right now is to stick with the two doses and to very quickly gather data um, and, and we can learn in real time from what's happening in other countries. And then we may adjust our we may adjust our approach. I think that's the key here, and I think that that has been that has been the hallmark of countries that have been able to do well. Is that countries that have been able to do well have been able to look at data and pivot quickly as soon as there's more data available to make decisions. And I think that that's very frustrating for 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 the general public. You know, we want to know well, what are we going to do, and how can we make a plan, and what's going to happen next. But unfortunately, in the context of a of a global pandemic with a novel virus we're constantly making decisions based on the data that we have and gambling on on what we think the best thing is for our populations. Dr. Ann Ramoyne, Epidemiology, UCLA. Well, let's say you are fully vaccinated. You have nothing to worry about, right? You can you can toss your masks. You can host parties. You can go running through the streets. No. No? Mm -mm. Oh. Not so fast. Dr. Namanji Bumpus is director of the Pharmacology and Molecular Sciences Department at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. So, doctor, let's say that Charles and I both have our vaccines. Uh, we wait around. We're protected because we waited a couple weeks. Can we hang out with others who also have theirs? Yeah, so what we're still saying, I know it's hard, but it's that we need to keep masking, distancing, avoiding large groups. And really the issue now is what we're hearing about this variant discussion. I mean, so we don't know how well the vaccines decrease transmission. That's against, you know, kind of the original um, SARS-CoV-2. We hope that it would. We don't have those data yet. But now with the variants and, you know, we're seeing the reports of decreased efficacy, it's really important to maintain the distancing until we can really understand how these vaccines function in the real world, you know, outside of the clinical trials. 
is transmissibility the issue that you could still have some COVID in your system, even though you're not feeling anything, you can still give it to somebody else who doesn't have their vaccine? Is, is that the problem? Exactly. So the efficacy rate was basically, you know, how much it prevented symptomatic COVID. So asymptomatic, you know, we still don't really know. That just wasn't, um, you know, easy to measure in the studies. It would have been a huge logistical addition to try to really look closely at asymptomatic transmission. So we don't know um, about asymptomatic infection. So we just don't know. You could still be able to transmit it. Okay, so so the difference of the variants, we don't know. So I can uh, already imagine some people listening to this thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this means that I'm stuck with this mask on my face for the next couple of years. Is that possible? Well, hopefully not the next couple of years. I think that we all still hope, um, you know, as we've been hearing that the end of this year, we'll get back to some normalcy, but I think the variants do kind of change things. We have to look at what the efficacy is, if there is gonna be some requirement of a booster, but certainly for now, we have to maintain the masking and the distancing. It's really important. I wanna go back to what, what Charles was saying at the beginning, because there's always the official public health guidance and the rules and what we know and what we don't know. And then there's real world practice. And in real world, let's say I'm, you know, 65 plus and I've been pretty good at isolating this whole time. And so is my neighbor. And we've been waving to each other over the fence. But now we both have our vaccines and we want to hang out outside or inside. And we're not seeing anybody else. And we don't think we're going to pass this on. But I want to form an immunity bubble. Can I form an immunity bubble? Yeah, we just don't know how well it'll work. And there's some data that were announced, you know, recently, basically, that even if you say have had COVID and so you have some immunity that you may not have immunity to the variants. And we still don't know that I mentioned with the vaccine. So I would not try to form an immunity bubble, unfortunately. Well, a bubble of one yourself um, and, you know, keep up your distancing and masking. We just, we just don't know enough. I mean, is is this substantially different from other diseases in that respect? Because I'm thinking like the flu, um, you know, if you have the flu shot uh, and other people around you have the flu shot, you don't take particularly drastic precautions. You kind of presume everybody's got the shot and you're going to, you know, you're kind of good to go. Yeah, I think it's because we're in the middle of a pandemic, just the way that it's been spreading and the surge that it makes it different, you know, than comparing it to the flu. I think certainly in the middle of a flu pandemic, we know that people took lots of precautions, right? So I think in a pandemic, we just have to think about this differently. The levels we're seeing just make it um, unique and make it, you know, so there's particular urgency. And to be really clear, even if you're vaccinated, you should not go up to somebody and cough on them in the supermarket. Is that right? <laughs> not if you're vaccinated, not vaccinated. <laughs> even if you have a mask no on, circumstances. you don't cough on it. Yes. Okay. Definitely right. avoid that. Okay. Definitely. I wanted to make sure we got that clear. Okay. Dr. <laughs> Namanje Bumpus directs the Pharmacology Molecular Sciences Department, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. The pandemic has led to lots of job losses, but those losses could turn into gains for many people. Nearly four and a half million business applications were filed last year, the highest number on record. That's an increase of 24 percent from 2019. The increase is unusual because the recessions usually see a drop in people starting businesses. Most of last year's business applications represent non-employers, such as workers striking out on their own as freelancers. A major unknown, how long these new businesses will last. Find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 